It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. My name is Brenda, and welcome to Horrifying History, where you will hear about the unexplained, paranormal, and supernatural happenings that has stained the pages of history. The American Founding Fathers. Without them, there would be no United States of America. This group of predominantly wealthy plantation owners and businessmen united the 13 colonies, fought for independence from Britain, and wrote a series of governing documents that still steers the country's direction today. These men revolted against their king, outlined their grievances in a powerful document that called for their freedom and then decided to fight for that freedom. They won what was considered a stunning victory over what was then the world's strongest superpower. But the thing is, these men were still men. They were regular humans just like the rest of us. And also like the rest of us, they had secrets that were best kept under wraps. You know what they say about secrets, though. Someday, they always come out. Welcome to Episode 18, Secrets That the American Founding Fathers Wanted to Keep Hidden. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. George Washington was the first president of the United States and commander of the Continental Army. In many people's eyes, he exemplified character and leadership. 
but not in his mother's eyes. You would expect that Mary Ball Washington would beam with pride due to her son's accomplishments. But the thing she was known best for was complaining. Mary was known to be a strict parent who criticized versus praising. One of George's childhood friends said of Mary, of the mother, I was ten times more afraid that I ever was of my own parents. When George moved out, Mary constantly wrote him demanding he send money, even when he was away at war with the British. She even wrote the state of Virginia demanding a pension from them, and this humiliated her son. George wrote back to them begging that they do not give his mother any money. All of us, I am certain, would feel much hurt at having our mother being a pensioner while we have the means of supporting her, George said. But when Mary got older, George urged her to move in with one of his children, just not him. When she passed away, he added a note into his plans for his estate that gave a little hint into their relationship, which was, she had a great deal of money from me at times. Speaking of money, it was a good thing that George had a lot of it. This was because he bought his very first elected position with alcohol. In George's time, alcohol was served on election day, and voting stations would be full of liquor. At the time, if you didn't give voters alcohol, they just wouldn't vote for you. George learned this the hard way when he first ran for office in 1755. He actually wanted to take the high road, and he refused to run a tab for his constituents. He lost. 271 votes to 40. So, when he decided to run again, he decided to go and take action. Three years later, he served his voters 545 liters, or 144 gallons, of booze. That was almost two liters, or a half a gallon of liquor for each person. But George feared this wouldn't be enough. It obviously was, since George won by a landslide. Now it's time to talk about George Washington's teeth. Legends say that they were made of wood. This is not true. The fact of the matter was that George suffered from tooth pain his entire life due to a combination of poor genetics and a terrible diet. Eventually he lost them all, but luckily for him he had money. His dentist made him a brand new set of teeth that was carved from hippopotamus ivory and was affixed with gold wire springs. They were also held together with brass screws, and this allowed the structure to hold a set of real human teeth that were ripped out of the mouths of his slaves. Records show that George paid his slaves 122 shillings for nine of their teeth. Washington then brought these teeth to his dentist, who installed the slave teeth directly into his own dentures. Maybe this is why the story of the wooden teeth was created. Now, I feel it's necessary to take a little sidebar, people. Seriously. Just brush and floss. If you do, you will have no need to walk up to anybody and demand they pull out their teeth. Also, personally, I would have went with the wooden ones. I would never, ever, ever think of hurting another human being for my own gain or, well, putting anyone else's teeth in my mouth. I mean, yuck. Anyways, let's continue with our story. As I said, George Washington had money. In fact, he was considered the richest president in history before the current president took office, 
So how did he make his money? Mostly it was through inheritance and marriage. George's wife Martha inherited a huge amount of property when her first husband died. This property was an 8,000-acre plantation with five separate farms, and at times, there was over 300 slaves with a lot of available teeth. But that wasn't the only place he got his money. After George left office, he opened a whiskey distillery, and soon, this became the largest in the country. By the time George died in 1799, he was shipping 42,000 liters or 11,000 gallons of whiskey across the U.S. every year. Personally, I find this very ironic, since during his presidency, the Whiskey Rebellion came into play. This was a tax protest beginning 1791 to 1794, and it took place in Pennsylvania. The tax was placed on whiskey, and it resulted in the very first serious challenge to George's authority, and it resulted in violence. The rebellion collapsed when George sent his militia out to stop it, and it was even said that he put bounties on the head of the leaders. It seems that George didn't want anyone to dispute his plan of getting money both as the seller and as a government. Now, people know George as a progressive man, but you may be surprised to hear that he didn't just sell booze, he also sold weed. As we mentioned earlier, George had a large plantation, and on it he grew a lot of crops, and this included cannabis. George's own diaries made it very clear he was trying to harvest THC from the female plants, and that he struggled to properly separate the male and female plants. It's also extremely likely that he dabbled in his own product, since there is plenty of unconfirmed reports that George had a bit of a habit of regularly smoking pipes full of cannabis. According to one of these stories, both George and Thomas Jefferson loved to swap their strains of weed as personal gifts to each other. Another thing that good old George was known for was that he would ask to not receive a salary. All he wanted was to have his expenses be reimbursed. To everyone, this seemed incredibly noble. That was until he submitted his bills. When George first brokered this deal, he was the general of the Revolutionary Army, and he racked up every possible expense he could dream of, including hiring actors and theaters to put on plays. While his army starved in the cold, he ate so well that he actually gained 14 kilograms or 30 pounds. By the end of his campaign, his bill came to almost half a million dollars back then, which today would be the equivalent of over $18 million in today's U.S. funds. Since Congress signed the deal, they actually had to pay George every penny. When George became president, he tried to broker the same deal. But Congress, they learned their lesson. They made him accept a wage. But still, George managed to negotiate a wage that is still considered the highest in history. It was 2% of the entire national budget. The last thing about George Washington that we need to mention is that, as previously said, he owned slaves. At the time, considering he inherited a plantation, this was actually expected. But what George didn't expect is that when he took the job of President of the United States, that he would be forced to live in Pennsylvania. So why was this a problem for him? 
Pennsylvania was the first state to ban slavery, and as we said, he had over 300 of them. The law at the time stated that any citizen living in the state could hold slaves no longer than six months, and after that, they had to be freed. So what can a man like George do? Well, you would look for a loophole. And find one George did. He started transporting his slaves in and out of Pennsylvania every six months to get around this law. Soon, many slave owners started doing this, so the law was amended to stop this behavior. It didn't matter to good old George. He rotated his slaves anyway. Everyone was aware. The government was aware. But everyone was too scared to arrest the first president, so they all chose to turn a blind eye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So now let's talk about George's buddy and fellow weed farmer, Thomas Jefferson. When people think of Thomas Jefferson, they think of a man who had a massive list of accomplishments that included advocating for the abolition of slavery early in his career and coining the phrase, all men are created equal. I guess that equality in his mind was only for some people since Thomas was a slave owner. Thomas owned his own private plantation, which was called Monticello. At its peak, Monticello was home to about 140 slaves. Some of these lived quite well. Thomas wrote about paying some of his slaves who were household servants and shop managers gratuities, but it is also known that many others lived in hellish conditions. Monticello was more than just another plantation. It was a miniature town site where forced labor made it work like clockwork. At the heart of this enterprise was a nail factory. In further writings, Thomas bragged about how profitable his factory was and that the nail factory paid for the entire plantation's annual food bill in just two months. This factory meant everything to Thomas since it was the difference between profit and bankruptcy. This was due to Thomas was well known to be horrible with money and that he spent his life half a step in front of his creditors. The main reason that this factory thrived was because of child labor. The naori was used as a selection process for a young slave. If you did well and made about 10,000 nails a day, you would get special uniforms, special food, and some privileges around the plantation. Those who didn't meet their quota worked in rags, was whipped repeatedly, and had their rations cut back as payback. By the age of 16, the boys would be split up between the ones who were considered to be promising and the others who were not. The promising ones would get apprenticed for a trade. The not-so-promising ones would be farm laborers. Now, this process wasn't only just for boys. So you see, on the property, there was a spinning shop, and this did the same thing to all the little girls. 
Life in the shops were even harder than one can imagine. The competition was high. There is a story that tells of a young boy losing a bundle of nail blanks. He and another boy started fighting about it, and soon afterwards, one boy was whipped so severely by the overseer to ensure that no one would fight again. The other was sold as a warning to everyone to never step out of line. So I want to take a quick second to tell you guys something about me. I'm a military wife, and to be very honest with you, it's not easy at times. I actually mapped out how often my spouse was gone on training or deployment for each year of the last six years. And he was gone an average of six months every year, and last year it was nine months. As I said, life can be hard, and the most difficult thing for me is finding time. Commuting to work every day, working a long work day, commuting home, taking care of my house, yard work, running around, taking care of family, and often without any help at all, and then I decide to put a podcast into this mix. So how do I actually do it? Well, one of the ways was I discovered LifeFit. LifeFit is a lifesaver with healthy chef-cooked meals that get delivered straight to your home. There's no cooking, just eating. And it's so easy. You can pick from a menu with tons of natural dishes, like some of my personal favorites, broccoli cheddar soup, buttered chicken, or even penne meatballs. Then somehow, these magically just appear at your home, all cooked up and ready to go. Just heat, eat, and repeat as necessary. So are you ready to eat? You can try Life Fit today with absolutely no commitment, and it's so easy to do. Go to the Life Fit link that is located in our show notes and on our social media pages and sign up today. You can choose from individual meals, breakfast, lunch, dinners, snacks, drinks, and even more. You can build your own meals or get lifestyle packages. You even can get kids' meals and smoothies. Seriously, these guys do everything. So check them out today by clicking on the link in our show notes and on our social media. You won't regret it. And now, back to our show. Pro-Jefferson historians have gone to great lengths to show that Thomas harbored anti-slavery ideology. They even hint that he was a secret abolitionist. In fact, Thomas's abandonment of abolition is considered one of the most dramatic turnarounds in American political history. Early in Thomas's career, he included the African slave trade in the list of horrible things that the English inflicted on America. He described it as a moral depravity. But that somehow changed around the year of 1792. It was then that Thomas wrote a letter to fellow slave owner and new president George Washington. In that letter, Thomas works through the math of owning slaves and realizes that slaves earn him 5 to 10% profit a year just by having babies. Thomas soon realized that slaves were not just good for doing business, but 
that they were their own business. From the early 1790s, Thomas stopped talking about the evils of slavery and became very eager to increase his workforce of very profitable slaves. Thomas then started talking to other slave owners and started to defend their practice in private. When he became president of the United States, Thomas was instrumental in spreading slavery west. He took the Louisiana Territory and started dividing it up into states, knowing that this would guarantee that Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Missouri would eventually become slave states. Then Thomas took the additional steps to advocate for the deportation of freed slaves, even though he was well aware that most of these people were born in America. What makes this all the more interesting is the fact that Thomas Jefferson became involved in a relationship after his wife died, and that relationship was with one of his slaves. Even more interesting was the slave was his wife's half-sister. In September of 1802, journalist James T. Callender wrote an article about Thomas in a Richmond newspaper. The article said that Thomas kept a concubine for many years and that this woman was his own slave. The article said that the slave was named Sally and that Thomas had several children by her. The article was then published widely and this story haunted Thomas for the rest of his presidency. He offered no public response to the story or the rumors that followed. Thomas's own daughter and grandchildren denied the reports. They maintained that this relationship was not possible on both moral and practical grounds. They put out to the public that Thomas's nephews Peter and Samuel Carr were the fathers of any lighter-skinned slaves on the plantation, and this is why that they look like Thomas. But still the rumors persisted. It was said that Thomas fathered at least six of the slave's children, and that the slave was identified as Sally Hemming. Four of the children survived to adulthood, and they are recorded in Thomas's records. In those same records, it shows that Sally worked as a servant in the Jefferson household and went with him to Paris. When in Paris, it was considered that she was free, but she returned with Thomas back to Monticello and back to slavery. Before she came back, she negotiated her enslavement to include privileges for herself and freedom for her unborn children. Thomas eventually did free Sally's children, but did not grant freedom to any other slave under his control. Through the years, Sally's children indicated that Thomas was their father, and this was told through the oral history that was passed from generation to generation. Still, the non-slave descendants of Thomas stuck to their original story. Then in 1998, all of this changed. DNA tests was done by a team of geneticists that would challenge the Jefferson family story. The DNA of the male line descendants of Thomas was compared to the Hemming family, and it indicated there was a genetic link between the Jeffersons and the Hemming descendants. It was determined that an individual carrying the male Jefferson Y chromosome fathered the last child known to Sally Hemings. The Jefferson non-slave family fought the findings. They said 
that approximately 25 adult male Jeffersons lived in Virginia at the time, and many of them visited Monticello. Shortly afterwards, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation formed a research committee that started looking into the DNA and genealogical evidence. In January 2000, the committee reported that due to all known evidence, which included DNA, original documents, written and oral historical accounts, and statistical data, that it was highly probable that Thomas fathered all six of Sally's children. The most interesting thing about this story is that Sally was born as the child of John Wales and Elizabeth Hemmings, who was an enslaved woman. John was the father of Martha Wales, and she became the wife of Thomas Jefferson. Martha and Sally were half-sisters. Sally was moved to Monticello as a toddler with the rest of her enslaved family after her father and owner died. She was the nursemaid to Thomas and Martha's children and received training for her position as Thomas's children's maid. She never was a free woman and was only unofficially freed after Thomas's death. Enslaved women had no legal rights to consent at that time. Thomas owned Sally's labor, her body, her children, but she was still able to negotiate with one of the most powerful men in the world at that time to improve her conditions and gain freedom for her children. In 2017, archaeologists started excavating an area of Thomas's home after some construction was being done, and what they found was astonishing. They found the dank, dark, windowless room that was the living quarters for Sally. It was hidden by a men's public bathroom that was installed in 1941. This room is where her children were likely born, and it shows that Sally was a real human being. Conveniently, the room was adjacent to Thomas's bedroom, and it was 14 feet wide by 13 feet long. For the first time, there is now a space dedicated to Sally and her life. It brings transparency to a property's past, and now there are tours that tell of the slaves that live there as well as Sally's family experiences. As much as Thomas tried to hide her and her existence, he was not successful. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Benjamin Franklin was born on January 17, 1706, in Boston, in the United States. He was a printer, publisher, author, inventor, scientist, and diplomat. He helped draft the Declaration of Independence and was one of the signers of the document. He also represented the United States in France during the American Revolution and was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. Today, Benjamin is known as a man who was witty, full of elegance and wisdom. But wise men also have secrets, and Benjamin was no exception. 
The first of these was that Benjamin's formal education did not get him past the second grade. The man that is known today as a scientist and inventor was pushed by his father to be a minister. But Benjamin had other ideas. In his lifetime, he became self-educated and was given an honorary doctorate. And after this, he insisted on being called Dr. Franklin. What greatness he was able to achieve considering he quit school at the age of six years old. One thing that people do not know about Benjamin was that he was truly the father of America. How? Let's just say he was popular with the ladies. It is said that he had only one official child out of wedlock. That child's name was William, and he was documented as Benjamin's son. Yet, William's mother's name has been hidden to this day. Many people speculate this is due to she was either a prostitute or a woman of very poor means, and this embarrassed the Franklin family. It was also thought that she could have been one of the Franklin family's maids, and that Benjamin paid for her living expenses her entire life. Benjamin was well known to like the older ladies, and in fact, he wrote a friend in 1745 telling him why he should take an older lady as a lover. His reasons were, and I just got to put a disclaimer out there, I apologize to all the ladies. One, since they've been around for a while, older ladies know about the world and you can have a better conversation with them. Two, if you hook up with an older lady who went through menopause, you can have all the unprotected sex with no consequences. Three, older women are more grateful to have sex because they don't get it as often as younger women. And four, the sin that you are committing having premarital sex isn't that bad since an older woman already had sex. There actually is a lot more reasons that Benjamin gave, but uh, they actually get worse from here. I don't want to be lynched by any of the ladies if I continue, but I will say that this isn't the only free thinking that Benjamin had concerning sex. In fact, he was part of the very famous gentleman's club in England that is known as the Hellfire Club. His reason for joining has been debated. Some say he was spying on the group, but it is very well known that he was at the club very often and he made sure he always attended the meetings. Why? What happened at these meetings? Well, they were twice a month and consisted of orgies and drinking. Well, well, well. Benjamin was a complete horn dog and maybe a serial killer. Wait a minute. Serial killer? Yes, serial killer. In 1998, in London, England, a restoration started on Benjamin's old home, which was located at 36 Craven Street. During the renovations, at least 15 bodies were discovered in the basement. Over 1,200 pieces of bone was found. The remains were over 200 years old and dated to the time that Benjamin lived in that home. The bodies were sawed apart and some of the skulls had holes drilled in them. There are several theories. Firstly, it is possible that someone in the home was doing medical experiments and Benjamin was a scientist, but why bury them under the house? Is it possible that Benjamin actually was a serial killer? Could it be that he was working with bodies purchased from resurrectionists, which also was illegal? The most plausible explanation is that Benjamin was running an anatomy school lab that was likely ran by his friend and protege, William Hewson. Since anatomy was still in its infancy, bodies were really hard to get legally at the time. The easiest way to get them was to pay a professional grave robber, aka a resurrectionist. 
researchers think that this home was the perfect spot for this work. Benjamin was a trusted friend who would not turn William in to the police. William's landlady was his mother-in-law, and William had the connection to get the bodies. Also, bodies could be easily snuck into the home from local graveyards or stolen away from the gallows. When they had no more uses for the bodies, it was likely easiest to bury them in the basement rather to try to sneak them out for disposal elsewhere and risk getting caught. The next man on our list is Alexander Hamilton. Alexander was the first U.S. Secretary of the Treasury and also in his life was a statesman, politician, legal scholar, military commander, lawyer, banker, and economist. As one of the founding fathers, he was an influential interpreter and promoter of the Constitution. He was the founder of the United States financial system and he also was a grade A horn dog. So let's talk about the horn dog. In the summer of 1791, Alexander had a visitor. Her name was Maria Reynolds, who was a 23-year-old beauty who came to Alexander's home in Philadelphia to ask him for help. Her husband James abandoned her after mistreating her. As Alexander was from New York and the Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, surely he could help her return to New York where she could stay with her friends and relatives? Alexander was eager to help, but he said he couldn't help her at the moment, so he would go to her home that night with money in his hands. When he arrived, Maria led him up to the bedroom, and their affair started. Alexander and Maria were together all that summer, when his wife and children were safely stashed away in Albany, New York, where they were vacationing with family. Then Maria's husband, James, returned in the fall. He instantly saw how he can profit from this situation— on December 15th, Alexander received an urgent letter from his mistress. It said in part, I have not time to tell you the cause of my present troubles, only that Mr. has wrote you this morning, and I don't know whether you got the letter or not, and he swore that if you do not answer it, or if he does not see or hear from you today, he will write Mrs. Hamilton. He has gone out and I am alone. I think you better come here one moment that you may know the cause. Then you will better know how to act. Oh my God, I feel more for you than I do myself, and I wish I'd never been born to give you such unhappiness. Do not write him, not a line, but come here soon. Do not send anything or leave anything in his power. Two days later, Alexander got a letter from James. In it, he claimed to love his wife, but he didn't think they could reconcile. James then proposed that Alexander give him money to leave town, and he would take James and Maria's daughter with him, and which would open the door for them to continue their relationship. Alexander gave him the money, but James didn't leave town. A pattern was quickly established where Maria would write a letter to Alexander, inviting him over when her husband was gone. Then, after the two of them had their exploits, James would then put a request in for Alexander to give him more money to stay quiet. Soon afterwards, James became involved in an illegal plan to purchase pension and payback claims for the Revolutionary War soldiers for pennies on the dollar. In November of 1792, James was put in jail for his scheme. 
Naturally, James reached out to Alexander for help, but Alexander refused. James was enraged and spilled the beans to all Alexander's rivals. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Several colleagues of Alexander decided to visit James in prison to hear his side of the story. James Monroe, fellow founding father and fifth president of the United States, led the group. They quickly heard the tale of Alexander the homewrecker who ordered James to share his wife. They also were told that the scheme that James was involved in also involved Alexander who was the secretary of the United States Treasury. So what is a politician going to do? Alexander was now implicated in a very serious financial plot that could kill his career and affect the new country's economy. So, Alexander decided to tell the truth. He was sleeping with Maria, and he was a fool to allow himself to be extorted. Satisfied that Alexander was only a horn dog, James Monroe and his colleagues decided to keep quiet to protect him. The problem was that James Monroe had a secret too. He made a copy of the letters that he received concerning the affair and sent them to Thomas Jefferson, who was, well, also a horn dog. Others saw those letters, and they made copies, and so on, and so on. Then, in 1796, Alexander wrote an essay about Thomas Jefferson's horn dog ways. A man named James Callender read the essay and was aware of the not-so-secret letters. Callender put out to the press that Hamilton was guilty of the money scheme and that he had absolutely no morality since he was a massive hypocrite. Alexander was now stuck. If he denied the charges, the proof would be released to the world. The affair would destroy his marriage, his social standing, and end his career as the Secretary of the Treasury. Left with no other options, Alexander decided to confess his indiscretions with Maria and try to use this as proof that he wasn't hiding anything. But Alexander's confession was more revealing than anyone would ever guess. Alexander decided to produce and distribute a pamphlet that was called Observations on Certain Documents, which would tell his side of the story and would offer the blackmail letters for everyone to read. He said that he was the victim of an elaborate scam and that his only crime was, and I quote, irregular and indelicate amour. The pamphlet also told about how Alexander met Maria, all about their affair, and the blackmail that followed. It told about how Alexander convinced his wife to stay in Albany so he and Maria could get busy in Alexander's house without having give any explanations to anybody. After the documents released, James forbade Alexander from seeing his wife ever again. Even so, Maria continued to write Alexander and begged him to return to her. And he did. 
A week afterwards, James once again wrote to Alexander to demand more money. And Alexander gave it to him. But now his reputation was in tatters. Any talk of him ever getting higher in politics stopped. Alexander blamed everything on James Monroe and challenged him to a duel. Monroe politely told him to jump into a lake. The tale of the affair haunted him to the end of his days. Thank you all for joining me for our latest episode of Horrifying History. I would love to hear from you. What do you think about these Founding Fathers' hidden secrets? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to let us know what you think. I also want to take a quick moment to thank you all for hitting that subscribe button for my podcast. With each and every subscribe button hit, you allow more people to learn about this podcast and when you hit that subscribe button, it automatically downloads our next episode on the day of release. It's a great way not to miss our next episode, Historical Next Level Hoarding. Feel free to reach out to me anytime at horrifyinghistory at outlook.com with any comments, questions, or story ideas. I would love to hear from you all. Thank you for listening again today, and until next time. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.